We are in the midst of a series on rejecting Jesus, and uh, we have already had two lessons in this series. The first lesson took us to Jesus' hometown in Nazareth, and we saw the conclusion of Jesus' proverb, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. He went home, they didn't receive him, and it wasn't because they denied his miraculous power or the authority with which he taught. Their problem was that when he came back home, this time he came home trailed by 12 apostles and a host of disciples, and it threw them off because he was asking them also to follow him. How could this hometown boy that we've known since he was a child ask us to be his disciples? How could he ask us to change our ways? And so Mark tells us they took offense at him. They stumbled over him. In the second lesson, we talked about how Jesus was rejected by his family. This is in Mark chapter 3 where we'll be today. They came to a house where he was teaching. He was pressed in by the crowds. They couldn't get in. Again, they did not deny his miraculous ability or his authority with which he taught, but they thought he was out of his mind. They said he's crazy because he was putting his spiritual family before his physical family. Now, as long as they were top-notch, they were fine. But when he started saying, my disciples are my true family. Well, that's when they started saying he's out of his mind. And again, they rejected him. Now we come to a third group who rejected Jesus, the scribes. These were his religious leaders. Now, the scribes were copyists and teachers. You can think of them as experts on the law of Moses. And it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, that they had come down from Jerusalem to Galilee to challenge Jesus. They came down not in the sense they went south because Galilee is north of Jerusalem, but they descended down because Jerusalem was built on a hill, Mount Zion. So they went to Galilee on a special trip to challenge Jesus's teachings. And as in the case of all the other rejections, we don't see any record of denials of his miraculous power. It appears that they believed that he had authority to teach that he had miraculous power. Uh, in this case, the power they were rejecting, they were, they were fighting against was his power to cast out demons. What they said is, you're working with the devil. Now, why did they say this? And that's a, a very serious charge. Well, the reason is, in their mind, their comfort came from their reliance on their ability to keep their interpretation of the law of Moses. That's where salvation rested in their minds, was in keeping the interpretation of the law of Moses that they taught and practiced. And as long as it was there, they could be comfortable. See, they had control, and they could maintain their prestige and their power. Now Jesus comes in and he says, it's not keeping the law of the scribes and Pharisees. No one is able to be saved by their goodness because no one is good. The only way you can be saved is to rely on me. 
And see, they didn't want to hang their salvation, their eternity, on a man from Nazareth. They were the elite. They were snobs. They looked down their noses at Jesus. I wonder, though, if there is a little of us in the scribes. Because like the scribes, we're very religious. Like the scribes, we can tend to be self-reliant, prideful. We can sum up everything and our ability to be good or better than the people around us. We can tend to limit ourselves to our own strength and power instead of the omnipotent power of God and lean on Him. And we can tend to be insecure and defensive and anxious as they were because their reliance on themselves just wasn't working. We need to understand that it's a very dangerous thing to follow in the steps of the scribes because they were committing a sin they couldn't walk away from, a continual rejection of Jesus. And if you reject Jesus to your dying death, dying breath, that means eternal death. And this was the point that he was making. He talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people worry that they've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let me say this. If, if you're worrying about that this morning, then you haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the eternal sin. And we'll say more about that, but I want you to look at this from the standpoint of the scribes and ask yourself throughout this, have I been a scribe? Have I had the problems with self-reliance and pride that they dealt with instead of trusting in Jesus and relying on Him? We're going to divide the text up into two parts. We're going to look, first of all, at the accusation of the scribes. And in the second place, we're going to look at the admonition of Jesus. So let's start, number one, with the accusation of the scribes. And... Um, there are three in particular, but first I want to go back to this idea that I've been repeating over and over again with the hometown, with, with the family, and now with the scribes. You see, number one, there were no denials of his miraculous ability in this accusation. In fact, if you just look at the last part of Mark chapter 3, verse 22, what does it say? What's left is, he cast out demons. If you take off the first part of the accusation, the end of it says... He's casting out demons. Now, I think that's an amazing thing, that they're making an accusation that includes an affirmation of his miraculous power. He cast out demons. They're saying it, not him. And that's very telling. As I've said throughout the series, the rejections are greater testimony to his being the Son of God than the, than the approvals. And the nature of the accusation is interesting when you compare it to the others. So, so the family said he's crazy. And the hometown said, well, we've known him our whole life. How could he be anything but this carpenter's son from Nazareth? But these scribes are taking it up a notch. They're going into the supernatural. And why is that? It's because they're attacking actions that can only be explained by supernatural means. They can't just say he's crazy because the effects of what he's doing are apparent to everybody. And so they have to go into the supernatural world. If they go on the side of good with God, then they've lost their battle. And so they only have one place to go, and that's the devil and the demons. And so they say he's working with the devil. Let's look at specifics. What did they say exactly according to Mark 3, 
22 through 30. Here's the first thing that he said, verse 22. They said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul is a derivation from Beelzebub, which might be a more familiar name to you than Beelzebub. Beelzebub it was a Canaanite god, and if you split that name up, it's from Baal-zebub. Baal meaning Lord, Zebub the flies. So it means Lord of the flies. In the area of Canaan, they were irritated and driven away from their work and their homes by persistent flies and gnats. It may seem strange to you, but they had a god they prayed to in an effort to control the fly problem. And that's who Beelzebub was. Now, because of their distaste for idolatry, after they returned from Babylonian captivity, the Jews began to change this name in derision from Beelzebub to Beelzebul, the suffix bull there meaning dung. So instead of calling Lord of the Flies, they called him Lord of Dung. And as you can see in Jesus' response, it was equated with Satan by Jesus' day. So it's clear they're talking about Satan here and saying he's possessed by the devil. Possession indicates that Jesus, like the other poor souls that he had been helping by casting out demons, was not in charge of his own faculties. That he was being controlled by Satan. And this isn't the only time this accusation is made. Several times in the book of John, you see it made over and over and over again. John chapter 7, verse 20, the crowd says, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Twice in John 8, the Pharisees make this accusation. John 8, 48, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they put two criticisms there. A Samaritan and being possessed by a demon in their mind was the same thing. In verse 52, the Jews say, now we know that you have a demon. And then finally, in John 10, 19 and 20, there was a division among the Jews because of his words. And many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? So John conflates the criticism of his family. He's insane with the criticism of the scribes here. He has a demon. So on numerous occasions... And I'll show you how the language of Mark bears this out a little bit later. But on numerous occasions, they were saying he's possessed by the devil. He's not in charge of his own faculties. You can't trust him. The second accusation we have in verse 22, similar to the first, but a little bit different. By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Matthew connects Beelzebul in his account, Matthew 12, 24, with the prince of demons. So we're still looking at the same figure here. Satan, he can be distinguished from the other in that here they seem to be saying he has charge of his faculties, he knows what he is doing, but he's in league with Satan. He's working together with the devil to cast out the devil's own minions. And then the fourth charge, or the third charge rather, in verse 30, returns to a previous one. The, the one from verse 22, just in different words, he has an unclean spirit. Talking about demon possession again. The one who's casting out demons is possessed by demons. Not any demon, he's possessed by the prince of demons, Beelzebul, Satan. 
I said a moment ago that this isn't just one occasion, but it was over and over again. And the language of Mark bears this out both in verse 22 and here in verse 30. It's in the imperfect tense. So it doesn't say the scribes said he has an unclean spirit. But it's very important that you, you see what the language is saying exactly. It says they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He's possessed by Beelzebul. Over and over again, continuously, this was the position that they held. This is going to be very important to come back to when we try to start trying to understand what is meant by blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Keep this in mind. It wasn't just one time, but over and over, continually, until Jesus died on the cross, for the rest of their lives, the scribes were saying, He's not who He claims to be. This isn't the Son of God. This is a man not in control of himself. He's being controlled by Satan. That was the accusation. Not very deep, not very hard to understand, but that's what it was. And it was effective. How did Jesus respond? Let's look at the admonition of Jesus. This is in Mark chapter 3, verses 23 through verse 30. And he has three responses, and we're going to treat them one by one. And the first two are parables. Mark says in verse 23 that he responded in parables, in the plural. Now, a parable is an illustration cast alongside a spiritual truth for the purpose of helping people understand things. And we're usually accustomed to parables about the kingdom, and uh, we... Don't often turn to Mark chapter 3 to look at parables, but Mark calls them parables, and so that's what they are. They're very short, but they're effective in illustrating why the scribes are wrong. You can see logic here and reason, which shows that he is not insane. He is not possessed by demons. He is in his right mind, as always. So the first parable that he tells is a house divided. In verse... 23, here's what he says. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. They're talking about a divided house. A divided house can't stand. By the way, isn't it amazing how many of our expressions come from the Bible? A house divided, what is that? That's a family where dad is for Alabama and mom is for Auburn, right? A house divided, that's what it is in Alabama. That came from the scriptures. Not the Alabama-Auburn thing, but the, the way of describing it. And we get a lot of our expressions from, from the Bible. Apple of, apple of my eye, that's from the Bible. By the skin of his teeth. It's from the Bible. Oh, there's so many of them. It just shows how much influence the Bible has had on our lives. Even those who don't even know the Bible are using expressions from God's Word. Jesus' point here is very simple. They're accusing him of casting out demons by the power of the devil. What kind of strategy is that? Everybody knows that a house divided against itself a kingdom divided against itself, any organization that's not united together is going to crumble and fall. 
that kind of strategy won't work. And Satan is reasonable. He's not going to do something like this. As a side note, Charles Spurgeon made this point. I don't think it's the point of the, the whole passage, but I think it's a good application to make. He said, when it comes to unity, the devils are always united. Being divided against yourself is the arena of humankind. I think that's an interesting and very sobering idea. That when it comes to this kind of nonsensical organization, that's what we're good at. Because so many times we're more concerned about the individual than we are about the group. We're more concerned about my rights, my ambitions, my purposes, my goals than those of the family or the church or whatever organization you want to talk about. The demons may have started out, maybe they became demons by their individualistic, selfish pride, but once they're condemned, they get together and they stick together. We could learn something and maybe avoid their fate. What is our main purpose? What is our goal? The demons know their goal is to destroy us, and they're always together on that. What's our goal? Glorify God. Are we working towards that when we battle one another over petty differences? Are we always keeping it in mind the glory of God? Or do sometimes we put our goals above the mission? I think sometimes we're so concerned about ourselves that we divide the kingdom. And we know the results. It cannot stand. And so Jesus points this out very simply in a parable. Every kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. What kind of strategy would this be if that's what Satan was doing? The second example that he gives in verse 27, we'll call that binding the strong man. It's a shorter parable. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. No one knows exactly why, but demon possessions exploded on the scene during the three-year public ministry of Jesus Christ. You don't really read about them in the Old Testament. Some people will bring up the example of King Saul, but there's a lot of evidence to show that King Saul's situation was psychological rather than supernatural. You don't read about any cases in the Old Testament. You only read of two, I think, in the book of Acts. None in the epistles. It just seems to come to a head when Jesus was there to solve the problem. Now, why is that? Well, we can only guess and speculate, but it appears that God gave a longer leash to Satan during that time frame for the purposes of manifesting the glory of the Son. While Jesus was there to cast out the demons, they were allowed to possess people so that he could show his glory. And he had been doing this on numerous occasions, which is why the scribes were trying to address the situation. Now, demon possessions were real. They weren't just physical or mental maladies. A lot of times people try to demythologize, mythologize, I'll get that word out in a minute, the demon possessions, the miracles of the Bible. And what they say with demon possessions is, well, it's just a physical problem. He, he was just deaf or he was just mute or he was just an epileptic and they didn't know what that was, so they called it demon possession. 
that's not borne out by the testimony of the scriptures because these demons would talk back to Jesus saying things that a person who is deaf or mute or blind or, or has epilepsy, something they would never say. They would say things, if you look earlier in Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 3, they would say things like, you are the Son of God. I mean, they would testify to who He was. We know who you are. You are the Son of God. Now, being deaf doesn't make you say things like that. Having epilepsy doesn't make you testify to who Jesus is. This was more than just a physical problem or a mental illness. This was true supernatural interference from the dark forces. Demons were taking up habitation within people's bodies and ruining their lives. And the tragic result of that, reflected by this second parable Jesus tells, is that Satan would set up shop in a human body, dwell in it as one would a house. Another parable Jesus tells in Luke 11 following Luke's account of the same thing, bears this out. If you look at Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, Jesus talks about a demon after he goes out of a person, leaves the house. So he talks about the person's body as a house and goes into waterless places and he can't find anywhere to go. So he returns to the person that he had once inhabited and finds it finds the house swept clean and empty. And then he says the demon goes and gets seven more, more evil than himself, and they go, and the latter state of that person is worse than the first. Now I bring that up just to show the parallel to Mark 3, where Jesus is looking at a demon possession as an evil spirit that goes and lives in a person's body as if it were a house. That ties into this strongman analogy here. If you're going to come to my house and try to hurt my family or steal my things, what am I going to do? Am I just going to welcome you in? I'm going to call the police. I'm going to fight you. I'm going to try to keep you out. If I'm a strongman, I'm going to prevail. If I'm stronger than the thief or the kidnapper, I'm going to win, and he's not going to succeed. Now, is Satan strong? I think we'd all agree Satan is strong. What Jesus is saying is the scribe's accusation amounts to Satan tossing me the keys and saying, you can have my house. And that's not the way Satan operates. None of us would do that to a thief. Why would Satan do that with Jesus? Why would he work with Jesus against his own purposes? It just doesn't make any sense. And so, Jesus, again, defeats them with just common sense and reasonableness. They weren't thinking rationally, which brings him to the third part of the admonition. He's left the parables now, and he's speaking very bluntly in verses 28 through 30 about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says. Mark chapter 3, verses 28 30, through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, 
but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. You might want to turn over to Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to be flipping back and forth between the two accounts because Mark 3 and Matthew 12 talk about the same situation. We'll get to that in a moment. But naturally, we want to know exactly what this is because he says it's an eternal sin you can't walk away from. A lot of times it's referred to as the unpardonable sin. And, and some people are plagued with doubts and worry and anxiety all through their lives because they've convinced themselves they have committed this sin. I'm going to show you that if you're here this morning, more than likely you've never committed this sin. What is it? Well, let's start with blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Literally, blasphemy is sin involving something someone says. It's a transliteration. Our English word blasphemy is a transliteration of the Greek word. In other words, the Greek word sounds exactly like the English word. We developed the English word from the Greek word. The Greek word combines two words. Blapto, which means to injure, and phamy, which means to speak. So literally, blasphemy is to speak injurious things. Now, in the Bible, in our English translations, when it's referring to humans, it's translated slander. When it's referring to God, it's translated blasphemy. So blasphemy means to speak injurious things about God. Matthew's helpful here. If you want to flip over to Matthew 12 and look at verse 32... He backs this up with Jesus saying, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And so they were speaking against the Spirit who is God. Now what were they saying in particular? Look at Matthew 12 verse 28. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. They were saying it is by Satan that you're casting out demons. And Jesus is saying it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. So put that together. They were calling the Spirit of God Satan. They were attributing the work of the Spirit of God to the prince of demons. I would call that blasphemy. They were, they were speaking injurious things about the Spirit who is God. By the way, we know the Spirit is God. The Godhead is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you need something to, to see that in Scripture, you can go to Acts chapter 5. In verse 3, Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, you have lied to the Spirit. And in verse 4, he says you have lied to God. Using the terms Spirit and God interchangeably. We baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The Spirit is God, okay? He's divine. He is not some force, some mysterious it. He is a personality that makes up the Godhead, three persons in one divine essence. And Jesus was casting out demons by the Spirit. And they were saying, you're casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. This was blasphemy. They were speaking injurious things about God. Now, why did he speak in these terms? I think it has something to do with the role of the, of the Spirit. 
Jesus said all other blasphemies are forgivable in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. He said, if you blaspheme against the Son, if you speak evil things about me, that's a forgivable sin. But if you speak evil things against the Spirit, that's an eternal sin. What's the difference? It has to do with the role of the Spirit. The role of Jesus was to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. His role was salvation. He was the instrument of salvation. He was to shed his blood and to rise up and to show humankind the way to God. The Spirit's role is to reveal the Word of God. You can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and following. These things, Paul said, he revealed to us by his Spirit. Verse 13, uh, he teaching, taught word, words, the Bible is words taught by the Spirit. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's role is to teach us the Word of God. Now, the Word of God, the testimony of the Spirit, in this case, was that Jesus is the Son of God. And He casts out demons by the power of God. And they were saying, no. Jesus is not the Son of God. He is in league with the devil. He is possessed by the devil, thus denying the Spirit's testimony. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. In Luke's parallel, Jesus says something very interesting. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Notice what he says. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You remember Matthew 12, 28 a minute ago. I know we're floating between three passages, but Matthew 12, 28, he said, if it is by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, Luke's account, if it is by the finger of God I cast out demons. Why does Luke have finger of God where Matthew has Spirit of God? Do you remember the Ten Commandments? How was it said by Moses in Exodus 31 that the Ten Commandments were etched into stone? Do you remember what he said? They were etched into stone by the finger of God. The word was written by the finger of God. Don't you think the scribes thought about that? And don't you think Jesus knew about that? It's such an unusual turn of phrase. I think finger of God is only used like maybe three times in the Old Testament and two of the three times it's used to refer to the etching of the Ten Commandments in stone, the writing of the word of God. And so he's equating the work of the Spirit with the finger of God because the work of the Spirit is revealing God's Word. In this case, the Word that Jesus is Savior, the Son of God. Now remember what I said earlier. They had not done this once, but they were doing this repeatedly. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Mark chapter 3, verse 30. They were saying. They didn't just say it, they were saying it. Years ago, I remember a campaign on YouTube where atheists were getting on and recording themselves committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They would just say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And that would be the video. And I guess they were trying to show how bold they were in their assertion that God doesn't exist and how they weren't afraid to commit the unpardonable sin. But I believe with all my heart that if one of those individuals grew in their understanding and came to faith in Jesus Christ, they could take those words back and be saved 100%. Because they weren't doing something 
that was continuous till their dying breath. They were saying something they could take back. The scribes here, though, were doing something that they couldn't walk away from. They had set their minds against Christ so much that they were teaching the people that instead of casting out demons by the Spirit of God, he was casting out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. You can call it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can call it other things. Any sin that is repented of can be forgiven. 1 John 1, 7, Jesus' blood can cleanse all sin. You can read about it in Romans 10, 15. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He doesn't say everyone except those people who blaspheme one time can be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is something that you do until your dying breath. You can call it whatever you want. If you don't repent, you're locked in eternal sin. 2 Peter 2.1 puts it differently. Denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Jesus bought us. If you deny that purchase, that redemption, there's no hope for you. Because the only hope that any of us has is in Jesus Christ. You can't have eternal life without Him. Any sin that causes you to permanently reject Jesus is a sin you can't walk away from. The sin committed by the scribes was a sin that had more to do with their attitude than any specific thing that they had done. They had turned their hearts away from Jesus. And what does this mean to us? We have to be careful about what we rely on. I want you to explore yourself. I want you to investigate your soul. Where do you get comfort? Do you draw comfort from your ability to be good, to do the right things, your perfection? Do you draw comfort in that you're better than the people around you? Are you constantly critical of others because you want to deflect your, your mind from your own mistakes? Are you anxious anyway because you know deep in your heart you're really not good enough? You know those sins are... Are there? You know that uh, you need cleansing, that you can't give yourself. Or do you rely on Jesus? Do you trust Jesus to take away your sins? You know, you could be committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If in your heart you're saying, I'm good enough on my own. I don't need Christ. I don't need salvation. I don't need redemption. I'm good enough. If you stay in that mindset, there's no hope for you. You may think that you rely on Jesus, but examine yourself. Where are you trying to get comfort? Have you been able to just admit your sin, your flaws? Have you confessed, truly confessed, authentically that, that you're, you're sinful and lost without Christ? And have you put your trust and faith in Him? Because that's the only hope you're going to have. And of course, putting your trust and faith in Him means that you're going to submit to the commandments of God. And if Jesus says, you've got to believe that I am He, you do that. If He says, you confess publicly before others that I'm the Son of God, don't be afraid of your faith. Let it be known. You'll do that. If He says, I want you to repent of that habit, that sin, that hatred, that attitude, you're going to change. 
If he says, I want you to demonstrate the gospel through baptism and, and show people and the process of your conversion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in your own death, burial, and resurrection, I want you to believe that when you go into the water, God is going to put you in contact with the blood of Christ and be raised to walk in newness of life. If he says that, you're going to do that. If he says, I want you to live faithfully, I want you to tell others about me, I want you to trust in me and get your strength from me, you're going to do that. Of course you're going to do that. You're relying on him now, not your own wisdom and not your own strength. Are you walking in the steps of Jesus or are you following the path of the scribes who rejected him? You may not believe that Jesus was in league with demons. That's not the point. Do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to change? Do you need to make a change this morning? We're going to sing an invitation song. If we can help you, let us do so right now as we stand together and as we sing.